0: So uh, if you're able to, I'm going to read starting at 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. If you're able to stand, I'd love for you to stand with me. We stand when we read God's Word uh, to honor it. And then after I read it, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, that just means you're thanking the Lord. The Lord didn't have to speak to us, but He did. And He gave us His Word. But also, in your mind and in your heart, when you say, thanks be to God, let it be for you a time where you say, and you're in your spirit. God, the things that you teach me today, I want to say yes to. I want to obey. I want to be challenged by and go after. So starting chapter four, verse one. Now the wife of the one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elijah, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be a slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me. Um, do you have any oil and do you have, what do you have in your house? And she said to your servant, she said, your servant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. And then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty the vessels, um, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and, and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself. um, And And as she poured and as they brought vessels to her, when the vessels are full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And uh, he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God. And he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts, uh, and you and your sons can live on the rest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So. Uh, my assignment for today was chapter. I'm still getting some feedback. I don't know if you can hear is it. it's, it's chapter three and four chapter three and four. So I'm going to summarize three, for you really, really quickly. Um, and then we're going to go into four, but in chapter three, there's basically uh, a war that's about to go on, uh, with Moab, the three, and there's three Kings, uh, that are, going to unite themselves to be able to go and fight this war against Moab. You can see there in chapter one, chapter three, verse one in the 18th year, Jehoshaphat, King of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab became King of Israel and Samaria and he reigned 12 years. So you have these two uh, guys that are going to come together with the King of Edom and the three of them are going to go and fight against Moab. They eventually get tired trying to go out there. uh, And then they're like, well, should we do this? Let's inquire. And they ask Elisha and Elisha, but actually Elisha like, I don't even really like you, but I just like one of you. And so I'm going to give you some help. Uh, and so sure you can do it. And whenever they're going, uh, they're going to go and they're going to fight against them. Um, eventually, uh, it gets to where it looks like they're going to win. And if you get towards the end, Moab, uh, the King of Moab, whenever they're just about done, if you get in verse 25, uh, they overthrew the cities and every good piece of land, um, and every piece of land, every man through of the stone was recovered. And they stopped every spring of water and felled all the trees till all the stones were left in Kir Kirhasheth. And, sling- uh, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him. This is the king that's going against the, the three. Uh, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite of the king of Edom. That was the third king that, that were going, but they could not. And so what does this, this evil king do of Moab? He... Commits infanticide. He he says, well, I want to win this war. And so what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to kill my oldest son... Uh, and offer it to the God of Shemash. This is a, a pagan. This is not a God. This is a, a non-entity. Uh, but he thinks by doing this, it'll help him. And it says, then he took his oldest son who was uh, to reign in his place and offered him a burnt offering on the wall. And there, so he thinks that that's what is going to bring about their win against the, the three kings of Israel. Uh, well, Israel, Judah, Edom. And, and it says, uh, and there came great wrath against Israel. Now that, that word against uh, commentators say there's four different ways to interpret this. This can be against Israel, but it also can just be upon. pawn. Uh, and it says, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. So they're about to have this war. The, the summary version is, I think what happens is Israel sees what this king does, and they're just Utterly repulsed that this man would commit infanticide, and they're like, "We're not even fighting this war. We're leaving." So it, this this could be uh, great. Wrath came upon Israel. Like Israel took it upon themselves to feel wrath. Towards this king for what he did, um, because it doesn't say. Usually, it's it, most commentators say usually it says it was the wrath of God, and here it doesn't say that. And so that's 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 what happens in chapter three. Um, I'm going to refer to it in just a second um, because you have an instance of great desperation by this king of Moab, and what does he do in this great instance of uh, desperation? He looks to his f- fate pagan god of Chemosh and tries to appease him by infanticide. Um, we're going to come to that in a second. But that's, that's chapter 3. And then when we get to chapter 4, it shifts over because uh, we've dealt with Elisha a little bit and now we have uh, chapter 4, Elisha. And we have Elisha who's going to have three episodes of showing amazing compassion. And as we see Elijah in these three different episodes showing amazing compassion, the Uh, application for us is we are also called to be compassionate servants like Elisha. And so what I'm going to do is instead of looking at all three of them, we're going to look at episode one because that's really all I had time for us. As I wrote my sermon, I kept writing, I kept writing. I was like, oh man, I can only do one of these. So um, you can see the three episodes there. Oil for a desperate widow. This is God's compassion over debt. Um, And this isn't a, uh, you know, God wants to make you rich sermon. Um, uh, The second one is a a child for a barren woman. And even actually after the child dies, he brings him back to life in eight through 37 uh, being compassionate to this family. And then lastly, food for the hungry. That's kind of the outline of the entire chapter. And we're just going to dive into one through seven. And that's all we're going to look at today. But I wanted to make sure you had the entire thing. So, um, Chapter 1 through 7, I don't know how many sermons you've heard on chapters 1 through 7, but uh, this text has been hermeneutically butchered a lot, just a whole lot. Uh, and so there's no need to do that. We can just exegete it straight. Uh, there's, there's not a whole lot of extra uh, kind of craziness in there. If you exe- exegete it straight, it's pretty, pretty easy, which is God is the capital H help to the helpless. God is the help to those who are helpless and nameless. Um, and that's that's the big idea of what's going on here. Um, he wants us to be compassionate people um, like Elisha is compassionate here. And so um, this woman is desperate, very desperate, uh, and desperate people matter to God. They do. They matter. There's evil desperation, which we saw in 327, where the king commits infanticide, but then there's not and this 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 lady is not evil in her desperation; she does the right thing, so we can see uh, the beginning there 's a compassionate beginning at this point a there 's a compassionate beginning and now the wife of the one now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to elisha so there 's a prophet who has a son, and this son gets married to this lady um, and so For all intents and purposes, we can just guess the prophet was probably a follower of the Lord. He raises children who know the Lord and his children as they marry are in families that know the Lord. And so this lady was likely a a pretty good follower of Christ. I know it's not Christ in the Old Testament, but he was there. We can just say that. Um, but follow the Lord, right? And so she's desperate. She, she goes to Elisha, who represents the, the, kind of the lead prophet at the time, uh, represents Yahweh. And she says, your servant, my husband, is dead. I'm a widower now. But th- my husband followed the Lord. He, he, was a, he was a good guy. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. She even spells it out for us. Uh, but I'm scared. We follow the Lord, but I'm scared. The creditor's coming. The creditor's coming. I don't have any money. I follow the Lord. I trust the Lord. It's the it's situation where I, I follow the Lord. I trust the Lord. Everything's good. But I've gotten to the place right here, and, and we've all been there, right? We're supposed to trust the Lord. We're supposed to, no matter what, uh, always fear the Lord, know that He's good, know that He's going to take care of us. And she's gotten to the point where I, all that's the case but here's the deal. The creditor is coming. I don't know what's going to happen. I know God's going to move. I just don't know how. And at the point where I am right now, I don't see how it's going to happen. And I'm about to lose my children. And I'm desperate. I'm absolutely desperate. I, I still believe in God. I still know that he's good. It's just they're coming to take my kids at any minute now. And it's hard for me. It's hard for me to still know that God's good and still know that I can trust him. I do. I do. But I'm scared. I'm scared. Because my kids are about to be taken from me. And so, uh, this is her time of crisis. Now, we should notice a couple things right from the start. One, in her desperation, she doesn't turn from God. She turns to God. She knows still where to go. In your time of desperation, whenever that point comes where, okay, it's about to, like... Something's about to happen that's going to really not be good. Uh, this is not the time where you turn away from God. Like this lady, she turns straight to God. She knows exactly what to do. She goes straight to him. But she knows that something bad is going to happen any moment. This is, as Dale Davis says, this is the Christian woman that has served Christ faithfully, but just got told that the cancer's returned. This is the earnest Christian husband and father who raised his children to know the Lord. And the fear of the the Lord, but then just had a drunk driver smash into his car and he just lost his wife and his children and he doesn't know what to do. This is like, I'm scared right now and I need the Lord to do something. I know he can and I know he will likely and I just don't understand. But this is where he is right now. This is where she is right now. And in the midst of that terrible trial, right in that moment, it's easy for us all just to say, okay, God hasn't done anything up until this point for me. I'm just going to figure it out myself. That's not what she does. That's not what she does. She turns to the Lord in the time of desperate distress and says, where else am I going to go? Like John six, where else are we going to go? Jesus, when Peter says it, you're all I have, God, please help me. So she goes to Elisha who represents God for the people. So she's still by going to Elisha, she's going to God. "I, I trust you. I trust the Lord, but they're about to come and take my kids. I need help. I need help. And that's what we should do as well. Now, um, that was what was commendable about her. We also should make sure we uh, don't just make it about her, but but draw our attention uh, up to the Lord to make sure that we notice what's unbelievably glorious about God. So for us on this side of the cross, this side of uh, what Christ has done, we as believers in Christ have access to God the Father This is controversial. Unlike non-Christians, we have greater access to God the Father than non-Christians. Shouldn't be controversial, but it is. Because of the blood of Jesus, through Jesus, God has granted us access to him, to God the Father, to bring our daily troubles to him. And God never gets tired of you doing that. Ever. Some of you just need to know, like, God's never like, oh, this person's problems again. Never going to happen. I might do that. I don't want to do that. I might do that. But God will never, ever, ever think that to himself about you. You got another one? Bring it here. Bring it here. Some of you just need to know that about God the Father. Always ready. Always ready to hear what's going on in your life. And we, like, uh, like this lady, and like David, are able to, to say these same words. Like David was distressed in the time of the cave. And this is what he says in Psalms 142, 1 and 2. He says, With my voice... I cry out to the Lord with my voice. I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. So while we commend her, we should also just stop and think about what's glorious to God. We have access to God. And he allows us to come forward and literally let these words be true. That we can go to him and say, God, I'm going to cry out to you. My voice is going to plead to you. I'm going to pour out all my complaints and all my troubles to you. It's glorious that God allows us, because of the blood of Jesus, on behalf of Christ giving us access, we have access to God the Father. So just pause for a moment and be in awe of the fact that you can actually go to God with your troubles. This is what this lady does. So she goes to God, but she goes to God. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. So as we're looking at that, we should notice that on the first side. On the second side, though, kind of the first challenge and second challenge, first challenge in our times of distress, um, go to God in your times of desperation, go to God, not away. But I want to look at Elisha also for a second. And kind of flip it because not every one of you might be desperate and in distress, but you might be in kind of the, the person of Elisha. Um, Elisha has been living in such a way uh, as a righteous prophet before the people, so that in such a way so that whenever people have problems, they look at him and they say, this man has lived in such a way before me that I know he loves the Lord and I know he represents the Lord and I can go to him because I know that he walks with God and I know that he can help me. So if if we're looking at this first little uh, compassionate beginning with the two challenges, the first challenge is in your moment of desperation like this lady, don't run from God, run towards God and give him all the glory for of it. Uh, For it, The second challenge is if you're not desperate, live in such a way like Elisha. So that whenever your church family around you is desperate, they know that they can come to you. Like that she knows she could go to Elisha whenever things are going south for them. Because they know that you are the kind of person they can come to for help that will give them the kind of biblical uh, counsel that they need. Both of these things are going on here. And it's pretty amazing. So she goes to him. You know, my servant is my husband is dead. You know that you, you, he feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my children to be his slaves. Notice what's not there. What, what's not there is. Um, so here's my solution, Elisha. That you need to do. So here's what needs to happen, Elisha. Get it together. None of that. It's, uh, I can trust Jesus with this situation. Here's the situation. Please, Lord, do something. Just notice what's not there also. She doesn't say anything more. Now, here we're going to feel the compassion. And it's there. Maybe it doesn't translate from Hebrew to English to ESV to you. But I'm telling you, it's there. Uh, You can hear the compassion that he has. And Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? Um, Tell me what you have in the house. It's not, what do you want? But tell me, what, what can I do? As a matter of fact, is there anything in your house? Let's, let's think together. Is there anything in your house that we can do to try to make sure that we can find something to get you some money? What can I do? What's in your house? So there's uh, compassion. This response is filled with compassion as he looks at her. Um, he's wanting to make sure he helps. So... Uh, Big picture application just as we look at verse 1, verse 2. Go out of your way. God's called us as believers in Christ to go out of our way to show compassion to those who are around us who are desperate and distressed. It's really easy to have Seinfeld compassion and not Jesus compassion. Just good luck with all that. You know, (laughs) glad to hear the story. Don't do that, right? If you don't watch Seinfeld... I probably shouldn't recommend it. Um, But I watched it back in the 90s and it was funny. Um, But that's what his, that's what the level of his interest of help was now that I've heard your story, good luck with all that. Um, We don't need to do that. Instead, as Christ followers, uh, go out of your way to show compassion to those people who are around you who are desperate and distressed. Yes, it will take some of your personal time away from you. Plan on that. Plan on losing your time to the people who are desperate around you. As a matter of fact, I would even go further and say, I think that the Lord wants you to plan on sacrificing your personal time for the sake of those around you who need your help. Tell me what you have in your house. What's there? He says, and she says, your servant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. Your servant has nothing. In other words, the oil is not mentioned in this text by the writer to be the spark of possibilities. <gasps> I have nothing but oil. It's reverse the sentence. I have nothing but oil. The oil is not mentioned to be in this writer's mind or even in the, in the text's mind, the spark of possibilities. Instead, no, it's mentioned as a sign of absolute destitution. The situation is dire. She has nothing. She is wholly inadequate to do anything about her situation. That's what the text wants you to get. It's not, oh, she's got one little thing. It's she's completely inadequate here. She has absolutely nothing but useless oil. That's it. The point of the text is to show us that she has absolutely nothing. Nothing in a similar fashion in Mark Chapter Six, where Jesus feeds the five thousand um, and the, they bring up the 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 loaves and the fish. And you're like, what do you have? Oh, there's 5,000 people. It actually says 5,000 men. So that means there's probably 5,000 women. And for every Hebrew, two and a half children, you know, good 12 12,500, maybe 15,000. They probably had more children back then, um, except for remedy. We seem to have a lot here, but nevertheless, um, <laughs> there's a lot of people there. It's 15,000 people there, right? Oh, we're going to feed 15,000 people. It's like uh, four or 5 PM. We can't send them to the Hebrew bell. So what can we do? Well, um, that's the Taco Bell. That, and so we can't really do that because uh, it says over and over and over. We're in a desolate place. We're in a desolate place. We're in a desolate place. So there's, there's nothing out there. There's no Waffle House or whatever. And it says, well, what do we have? Well, we have? We have these little fish and bread. Oh, okay. How's that going to work? That's the same thing here. You can't feed 15,000 people with this. You can't take care of this lady's situation with this oil. It's wholly inadequate. And Jesus says, I want you to feed all of them with that. Why does Jesus do that? Why does Jesus say, I want you to do something that's totally impossible? It's totally impossible. I want you to take this little bit and feed 15,000 people. He asked them to do something that's completely impossible. Why would Jesus ask them to do something that's completely impossible? Is that mean? It's not mean at all. He wants them to realize what John 15, 5 says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He wants them to realize, oh, I can't do this. That's what's going on here. It's bringing her to a point of when it says your servant has nothing. It's bringing her to this point of, oh, I can do nothing here. There's I am wholly inadequate for the situation to remedy it. Only if God comes and does something, he wants us to get to a John fifteen five part is apart from me, you can do nothing. And as Luther says about John fifteen five, uh, when he says, apart from me you can do nothing, our nothing is really nothing, not a little something. So the oil is not a little something. It's the whole text is written to help us see that it's nothing. She can do nothing here unless God comes and does a miraculous work, which he does. She's done for. She will lose him. And so the compassionate beginning, and it's counterintuitive, the compassionate beginning is bringing her to the point where she realizes and recognizes that she can do nothing without God. That's where God begins. That's where God begins with us. He begins by bringing us to the point to where we realize we can do nothing. And now it's time for God to start working. Without him, we can do nothing. That's compassion to break us of our self-will to think that I can do this all by myself. I don't need God. It's the compassion of God that breaks that. And that's what's happening here. That we would get here, Remedy, would be a dream. Not just for you, for me too, right? It's so easy for us to be able to think that we can just do it ourselves, but we can't do anything without him. But then we have this, this concealed compassion in verses 3 through 5. Um, there it is. Perfect. All right. So, to what you have, I have oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbor, neighbors, empty vessels, uh, and not too few. So I want you to get a, a bunch of empty jars from all your neighbors. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself. And your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full set aside, so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. So uh, borrow all of these things from your neighbors. So it's not completely concealed because the neighbors do see that she's asking for a lot of jars. They're not going to see the miracle. So the concealing is the, they don't actually physically see the miracle happen, but they're aware something's going on. You know, she's walking around asking for all of these jars, Uh, but we can get the drift of what we mean by concealment is that uh, the actual miracle itself is not going to be something that they're going to see. God's going to do this great work in secret, not for everybody to see. As Dale Davis says, sometimes God works quietly in a hidden way perhaps precisely because he does not want hullabaloo. He he writes this in the commentary. This is why I love Dale Davis. He does not want hullabaloo or fanfare or religious (laughs) rah-rah over his marvelous provision. Sometimes he doesn't want that. Um, We need to remember that everything, so for us the application is we need to remember that not everything that we do for the king has to end up on social media. I would just add to that. I might say that not anything we do the king would add should do that as a matter of fact i think i have a verse for that it's called matthew chapter 6 i want to read it to you um and you know take this as you please but i I think that this is important um this is a sermon on the mount and when we do things for the king uh, before other people so that other people think we're awesome then the other people thinking you're awesome was your reward and that's it but if you do things for the king that no one knows about, and no one ever thinks you're awesome, but God sees it, then your reward will one day be from the Lord. It's one or the other. Everybody thinks you're awesome or God rewards you. And if you're just picking, which one's going to be the better reward? Everybody right now thinking you're awesome or one day God rewarding you? I'm going to pick the second. Sometimes I'll pick the first, just like you. But really it's the second. That's what Mark 6, 1-4 through 4 says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You get the reward from everybody else. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites and the synagogues do in the streets, that they can be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that, so that you're giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I think that that's the way uh, our compassionate um, giving towards other people should be. Public compassion for the purpose of wanting everybody to think you're awesome needs to be redirected so that everybody thinks that Jesus is awesome, not you. And it doesn't even need to be public. But if it has to be, when in that moment, everybody's like, you're, you're just amazing. The Lord is amazing, not me. I would have wanted it to keep it myself, to be honest with you. Like, to be honest, maybe you wouldn't have, but let's, let's, uh, let's practice compassion in the way that the Lord would want, which is that he gets all the glory. All right, so to verse 5. This is the comp- compassion that stirs obedience. So consider what he said. So she went. So she went. The first three words, there in chapter and chapter four, verse five. Uh, so she went. Consider the instructions. Go borrow, borrow all of your neighbors' jars. Just get them all together. They're going to ask you what you doing. Just just tell them I need all your jars, and then start pouring the, that little bit of oil you have in their jars. And every time that jar fills up, just move it and put another one there. Just move it and put another one there. Um, it's not a pour and kind of stop and get another one. It's just you got one shot. As soon as you start pouring, just keep doing it because once you stop, it's going to stop. Um, that's what the the uh, the these verbs these are in, in five b are in participles. That just means they end in ing. So it's suggesting a continual action. The Lord's going to do this in this moment where you start pouring and you just you do this, and then once you stop, then boom, it's over. Um, so God's provision of her having all these jars filled dependent on her obedience. So she went, so she went, so she went and asked all the neighbors, God's provision depended on her obedience. Say it again. We don't want to miss this. God's provision depended on her obedience. The Lord providing depended on her obedience. Sure. God can provide for the church, and in our lives, despite our disobedience, of course. Happens all the time because the Lord is gracious. That's amazing grace, right? When God provides despite our disobedience. But God's provision seems to be, in a principal manner, more likely to happen while we obey. In this moment, God's provision depended on her obedience. Therefore, just to think about what the Lord wants for us in our life, when we think about compassion and reaching out, um, we should obey the things that the Lord is telling us to do when he's telling us to do it. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, perhaps to say it better this way, um, she moves from spectator to participator. And I think that's what all the Lord wants of us, especially for this year but I would actually say while you're at a church anywhere to move from spectator to participator, to give you an illustration. There's this football game, uh, Alabama versus rice football game. I love it when commentaries actually give perfect illustrations and it's about football. Uh, it was so good. I had to read it. 1954 Alabama versus rice. They're playing against each other and rice had the ball and a tailback broke around the edge and was going down the sideline all by himself, sure to score between him and the goal line was nobody. And as he was running, a player on the Alabama sideline could not watch it happen as a spectator on the sideline. Uh, he, he wasn't supposed to be in the game, but he simply could not watch it happen. He could not watch A touchdown happened and he came from the sideline and ran onto the field and tackled the running back so that the guy couldn't score. He could not watch this other team score on him. Illegal, no doubt. They still gave him the touchdown, but that's beside the point. The point is this, um, that he could not watch something happen. He had to move from spectator to, to participator because it was killing him seeing what's happened. The point is, when will all of us finally not be able to stand on the sidelines anymore and move from spectator to participator. She obeyed. We're all called to obey. Compassion stirs obedience. Compassion stirs obedience. Compassion in your heart for other people should stir you to start moving towards obedience to helping people. It's really easy in the American church to be a spectator and think you are really being the church. It's really easy because almost everybody in America is doing that. But that's not what the church is. The church and the Bible are active participants moving our lives out to the lives of others and helping them. And I just don't want you at the end of your life to have stood on the sidelines as a particip- as a spectator your entire life thinking that you're actually a participator. But instead get out into the narrow road. Or the wide road where people are walking down the path and stop and get in the road and hold your arms out and start grabbing people and saying the wide road leads to destruction and don't go down it. I'm going to grab as many as I can and bring you over here so you can know Christ and walk down the narrow road rather than standing on the sideline thinking that you are actually participating when you're actually just spectating. And God's providing, He's designing not merely to supply our need, but to build our faith and to, for us to bring about obedience in the process. We all need to move. I think all of us in different avenues and maybe wholly or maybe in parts from spectators to participators. And so uh, compassion stirs obedience. So she went. She was desperate, no doubt, but she still obeyed. So she went from Him. And shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her sons, bring me another vessel. And they said to her, we're out. That's it. Then the oil stopped flowing. Well, that's where people go crazy in some sermons. This is where the bad hermeneutics stop in. Her faith gave out and the Lord's abundant supply just ran off. That's not it at all. That's crazy talk. God was done with giving her what she needed. If you read the rest of the text, God gave her everything she needed. Re- read what it says. Uh, then she came and told the man of God, he said, sell the oil, pay for your debts. You and your sons can live on the rest. You can live for the rest of your life now on everything. He gave her what she needed. It wasn't, oh, she just lacked faith in God's abundant supply. Just her, uh, just stop. She, she could have been so rich if she had just had more faith. Nonsense. Nonsense. That's not what happens. So let's get the gospel in this last little part. Compassion points to the gospel. Three commands, three verbs here. Go, I'm sorry, sell, pay, live. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts, live. Go pay your debts and, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Not only does God meet her need right here, the the immediate need, creditors paid off, no one's taking your sons, but also you get to have abundance to live on for the rest of your life. Everything that's here pays your debt and now I'm taking care of you for the rest of your life as well. This is the generosity of God. He overflows not only with the immediate need, which is her debt, but the abundance and overflow the rest of her life and this is very similar in a lot of ways like the gospel sell pay live sell pay live so let me hear let me try to help us uh, see the this uh, narrative through the lens of the gospel sell i would say in a lot of ways is like whenever you come to the point of realizing that you're a sinner and when you sell you say, I don't want my old life anymore. I'm confessing all my sins. I don't want that anymore. I'm confessing everything that I am. I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And I can't pay it. Therefore, the pay is not me, but Jesus. Jesus paid it all. I'm, I'm coming and confessing my sins. And I'm saying my, my only hope is Jesus. And I'm going to realize that now Jesus has paid it all for me. And now whenever I confess my sins and I realize that Jesus paid it all for me on the cross, now I can truly live as a forgiven son or daughter of God. When Jesus was walking around in his public ministry teaching, he told one little parable in Matthew chapter 13 verse 44 that's very similar to this parable. this kind of gospel lens um, that we're looking at. Matthew 13, 44 says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it and covered up, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he sells everything he has. In his joy, he's willing to part with everything that he's ever known in his life. And that doesn't bum him out. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy that field the field that is the kingdom of God. Whenever we truly understand the good news of the gospel, what it means to be, you can cut him on, just turn him down. We're going to do our, 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 uh, the end of our service a little bit different. Instead of the Lord's supper, then worship, we're going to worship. And then we're going to close with the Lord's supper. Sometimes variation is good. It doesn't say you have to do it one way in the Bible. Um, But the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which means once we finally hear the good news that all these things I've always thought were precious in my life, but once I hear forgiveness of sin, eternal life through Jesus Christ is what's being offered to me. All of these other things that I've always thought were wonderful. I will gladly in my joy, get rid of all those things to have Christ. Pay Sell, pay, and then live. Sell all that I have and realize that Jesus paid it all. I'm going to come back and in my joy, I'm going to buy this field. Because now, as a follower of Christ, I can truly live as a son and daughter. And I realize that all those things that I thought were awesome in this world are nothing. Compared to being forgiven of all my sin and being called a son and daughter of King Jesus. So what's the gospel response for us today? Is to believe to the same level of compassion that's been shown to us in the gospel. That all of our sin has been forgiven. That same level of compassion that's been shown to us, which is astronomical. Now we take that and we live as compassionate servants to people around us. Telling them the good news and demonstrating the good news effects on us in their lives. So that they can come to know Christ. What's God calling you to do today? Trust in him today. For the forgiveness of your sins, if you don't know Him, or perhaps rejoice that you have a Savior that hears your cries in the times of desperation and stress. Or if you are desperate right now, come to Him in this time of need. Serve the King for His glory, not for yours. Or maybe He's just calling you, and maybe this is the this is the toughest one. You've always thought that you're a participator. And you're realizing that maybe you're not. Maybe he's calling you to say. No more spectating for me. In my walk with Jesus. I thought that I was. But I really haven't been. Most of my life is wrapped around me. And you're going to move away from spectator. To participator. You just can't take it anymore. You've got to get in the game. And do something. For the world that's falling apart around us. Whatever it is. Let's obey Jesus. Let's be people of action and let's be people of faith. Let's be the compassionate servants that he's calling us to be to the people around us. I'm going to pray and we're just going to worship here. Uh, And then after a few songs, I'll come up and I'll lead us in the Lord's Supper. God, be with us now as we worship. You're so good to us. You paid it all for us. Be with us as we sing out to your name and for your glory, how good you are in Jesus' name.